Hello, everybody. You know, we go to church very regularly, and some mornings it's just like, you know, you go to church, and that, yeah, that was church, but some mornings it's like, that was church. You know what I mean? Like, that was church. Except for you guys going to Cape Town, which really sucks. But like, Cora gets up, Cora gets up, and she's like, she tells, she's so inspiring, I'm like, I want to go. I want to be a young adult in that, like, flux of life that she's trying to explain. I'm like, I don't even feel that, but I want to come. And it's like, and you see people being sent out, and Guys, that was Ryan's first time leading, leading with us this morning, leading worship along us. beautiful. Just, just stunning. Jono's first time hosting with us. I mean, just amazing watching these guys. And then, and then I think about it like food, right? I mean, there's some meals that you have and you're just like, that was food. There's other meals I'm like, yeah, that was food. That was food. You know what's so cool? Both of them are needed. Yeah. Both of them are needed. The Sundays where it's just like, oh, that God, I really could have been doing something else. Could have been watching Formula One, you know, the early Australia one or whatever. You know, and then there's other Sundays where you just feel like you, you leave like on such a high. Both of those things God is using to grow us. Both of those things. Don't elevate the experiential, that those high moments. We only have the top of the mountain because we have the valley, right? That's the contrast. We only have those things because of the contrast. I want to just encourage us week after week to keep coming and pressing in to God. Anyway, that's off script. I just wanted to quickly say that. All right, so this morning, I had last week, I was trying to teach you guys um, off a board, and I had comments that from different angles, you couldn't see quite clearly and whatever else. So we're going to give it a go this morning behind me with an iPad. All right, Anton generously gave me his iPad for this morning. If it starts to get distracting, we're going to can it and Dev will just take over, all right? But stick with me, so hopefully it won't be distracting. And I really feel like God's burning a word on my heart for us this morning. So turn with me, if you would, to Philippians. Those of you just joining us, we are going through a book together as a community. And I I personally have just been loving it. The, the discipline of going through it in my own personal space as well as coming together on a Sunday and talking about it and then having it in life groups and a whole bunch of other spaces has just been inspiring for me. And last week I said to you, hey, there's other ways that you can get uh, involved. I want you to get more involved in the book of Philippians. And then my staff said to, to me during the week, well, you didn't really clarify for people who don't know how to get into a life group how they do. So I just want to quickly do that and that should work. How's that? Cool, eh? Off my iPad. Amazing. So that's our new gen website. That's a whole bunch of our life groups. There's a whole bunch more below them. But if you don't know how to get plugged into a website, into a, into a life group, this is where you go. All right? You go there. There's a whole bunch. You can see where they are, what kind of demographic they're accommodating, what time they meet, what day they meet. You will find one there, I'm sure, that you'll be able to go to. And if you don't, come and speak to me. You can start the one you need. How about that? And then for those of you who can't get out in the evening, on a Wednesday morning at quarter past eight at the Baptist Church, I've got a group that's just running for this series. So if we, just an hour, hour and 15 minutes or so. So quarter past eight on a, on a Wednesday morning, you can come and join us. And then another way that you can get the most out of this series is to keep up with the series. And so this is our website. It's actually just been updated, so you'll see some changes when you go on. But on the website, we've got Charles, who's uh, doing video for us in this series, and hi to our moms and dads in the mom's room. So this is actually a live feed through to them as well, because if you're doing drawing and a whole bunch of things and all they can hear, it doesn't make any sense. So you'll be able to see it. So you can get the video up there. You can get the audio up there. You can even get my very famous mind maps up there on the download. The confu- you want to know what it's doing. If you, didn't, if you weren't here last week, you'll have no idea. All right, so we're going to read together. And this morning we're talking about living with perspective. Living with perspective. And we're starting in verse 12. You can catch up if you missed the other weeks. You can catch up, as I've just pointed out, on our web, interweb browser. As my gran would say. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, which implies brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become, become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then, says Paul, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I want to pause briefly and I want to pray for us this morning. Father, as we come to your word and we approach this text in Philippians, I want to pray that, Lord, you would drill down into our perspectives, Lord, into where we are seeing the world in the wrong way, and you'd come and show us how to see it the way that you sing it, the way that you purposed it and planned it, Lord. We come this morning and willingly subject our minds and our will to your word, Lord. We want to sit under your word, not over your word. We want to, we want to hear what you want to say to us and say, Father, change us through your word. We ask these things in your name this morning. So another stated aim in this series is that we're trying to, as we preach, do it in a slightly different way to help uh, disciple us all in how to better read God's word. And so we're trying to give you little tools so that you can go to other verses, other texts, other passages, and you can also uh, read it in a meaningful way. And so one of the questions we need to ask when we approach a text like this is, well, what are the kind of ambiguous sections of the text? What doesn't make immediate sense to us? A really helpful way for me to do this, and if you've got kids, you can do this as well, is to go through Philippians with your kids. They are really good at spotting what they don't know. They really help. It's like, Dad, this doesn't make sense. These guys are like, they're preaching the gospel, but they're like, they're like against Paul. And they like pull out all this, this stuff. So a couple, of, a couple of those questions that come up in our quiet times. So the first thing is that Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me. Now we're going to try this. How's that? Did it work? I'm disconnected. That's all right. We'll put this down. So, we've, have we got... There we go. The one before... Yes, no. Other one. There. The latter... No. Before. Yes, that one. There we go. Technology. As Borat said. That's true. Technology. So, Paul says... What has happened to me? So you need to stop and ask, well, what has happened to Paul? That's the obvious question, right? Well, if he says, I'm put here because of what has happened to me, what happened to Paul? Well, Paul we know is in prison. We know that, that Paul is, is being afflicted by other preachers who are trying to bring this rivalry and whatever else. And then later on, which we aren't going to read this morning, we'll read next week, he speaks, about, he speaks really candidly about the fact that he might be executed. So when Paul says... That I've got to find my bearings again now. That what has happened to me, this is what he's talking about. This is what's happened to him. Then we reach, we reach these words. Those who preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And then if you go down to verse 17, you see that the same people he's speaking about, they don't just do it from envy and rivalry, but they do it with selfish ambition. And they do it insincerely, not sincerely. And they, they're trying to afflict him. Now, here's the shock. These people are Christians. Christians. Without doubt, all the facts point to it. You see, if you look at Paul's other letters, here's one of the evidences. If, if people preached heresy, if people preached something other than the gospel, even just when they were trying to bring their Jewish traditions in, Paul did not miss a moment to lay the smack down on them. That you, you could not do that. He just came in like guns blazing on you. Another little pointer in the text itself is that he says they are preaching Christ. This is where I really wish I had my pencil because I was like circling stuff and making circles and all sorts. It was so cool. Anyway, we'll get there again with technology. But look in the text and Paul says... Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, so not all the brothers, okay, but most of the brothers, 
And this thought in verse 15 is a continuation of that thought. So most of the brothers are preaching with more boldness. Some of those who are part of the most, some of those who are part of that group that are preaching with more boldness are doing it with the wrong motives. Then he continues and says, but others, in other words, others from that group who are preaching with boldness, others are doing it with goodwill. Some are doing it with love, others with selfish ambition. And so he's putting them both in the same group of people who have been emboldened by his imprisonment. And then there's a couple of interpretive uh, thoughts around this passage and what, what is going on and why they are preaching with this rivalry. And here's a couple of thoughts just, to, just for you to think about. One of, the, one of the theories is that these people are preaching against Paul because they really dislike him. And so in the moment that he's gone into prison and he's kind of defenseless, defenseless he's lost his pulpit, he's lost his ability to proclaim the gospel freely, they've taken the moment to throw these jabs at the stuff they don't like about Paul. In fact, there's a lot of theologians who believe that these people that are throwing these barbs at Paul are preaching a message of power and glory... And you can see this in other texts. I'll take you to one in a moment. And they are actually angry that Paul is preaching this gospel of suffering. And they, they're saying to their people, he's missed it. He's not really living the right Christian perspective. The Christian experience. I mean, does this sound familiar through the lens of the prosperity gospel today? They are saying, don't hold Paul up as an example. He's weak and suffering, and his way of following the gospel is ineffective. That's what they're saying. But Paul says this himself, all over the place. I'll just take you to one. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. He says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses. I'm content with them. I'm fine. You know, if you come and tell me, Paul, you know what, you did this and 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 this wrong. I hope my response to you is, is that all? Is that all you got? If you chat to my wife, she'll give you another whole list. Man, we got to get content with our weakness. Drop your defenses. We're all full of flaws, a whole bunch of us. Paul says, I'm content with weakness. I'm content with insults, with hardships, with persecution, with calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the gospel that Paul brings is a gospel in, in other parts of Scripture. He says, I came with weakness, with fear, with trembling, not with, not with much oratory power. But some guys hated that. They didn't like that. Alright, so we're going to look at this text, and, and if you got the little handout in the first week, you'll notice that living with perspective actually goes from verse 12 to 26. But as I was preparing this week, I just realized, man, there is way too much going on there. So I've split it into two weeks, so you can throw those little pieces of paper away, or just, just keep the front, because the front was cool, that had the logo and stuff. So the back is now a little bit redundant. But that's cool, because that's exactly, when you put a series together, we, that's just a series brief for us. If we feel the Holy Spirit wanting us to stop and pause on something, we're going to do that every single time. All right, so we're going to deal with perspective one this week and perspective two next week. And in this text that I just read, I want to pull out just two big thoughts this morning. The first one is this, but God, but God, expecting the unexpected. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by but God. When I say, but God, I mean that there's a God who's able to take what we see as impossible and bring it into the realm of the possible. If I had to use a ship analogy, I love thinking about standing and having perspective. Standing, is it the helm where you stand on the front of the ship like the Titanic moment? Is that the helm? What's the, what's the, the bow? So standing on the bow, we have, this, we have this earthly perspective. We can see so much. And it's like moments where God takes us and places us on an eternal ship where suddenly we can see with like eternal perspective. We can see this, this new, that's a but God moment when you have that. Are you following me? It's where our perspectives are changed, where we, where we see eternity. It's like moments of aha, where we see what God could see all along. It never, God never not saw it. We just didn't see it. Do you remember in week one when we started out? I asked this question, what would you expect to have happened to the Philippian church? What would you have expected? 
There's this man, Paul, the apostle, who comes rushing in. He has a few weeks, maybe a few months with them before he gets kicked out. It's a church burst in persecution. They don't have a great members list. They've got a woman who's had a demon cast out of her. They've had another woman who's a wealthy woman. And they've got a Roman jailer. And then they've got no leaders. They've got no church. And Paul goes away for six years. No emails. No phone calls, no encouragement, and he comes back. What did we expect to find? But God, but God sustained them. And that was the whole point of week one, that God was sustaining this Philippian church. And it wasn't just sustained, it was growing. And then in week two, I'll ask it like this. What would you expect to happen to those making a decision for Christ on that first day? Knowing me and knowing you, we'd expect that we'd turn back. After that first day where we came and said, yes, God, we love you. We want to follow you. And I say, well, what's going to happen into eternity if I give it five years? I can't even keep a gym resolution. I can't. I've gone on diet like I don't know how many times on a Monday and by like Wednesday I'm done. <laughs> this is so hard. Left to ourselves, we're mice in a mamba tank. We're ants. Did you ever do this little guys? We're ants walking into a little boy's magnifying glass hotspot. Did you ever do that like the little line of ants? <laughs> Just me? But God, what did you expect? Man, if I look at myself, I told you last week, if my assurance is in me, that's the complete opposite of assurance. That's terror. That's fear. My assurance is secure because it's in Him. It's in what God is doing in me. And here's the beautiful promise that from the first day until the judgment day, which is where we get judged for good and bad things, we see God promising that He would sustain them, that He would work in them, that He would bring them to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 6, where we focused last week. I am sure of this. I'm sure, I'm certain, says Paul, that He who began... A good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And now in our third week in Philippians, I want to ask you a new question. What would you expect to happen to the gospel message when its main missionary proclaimer, its primary preacher, is jailed and silenced? What would you expect? Let's ask it this way. What would the people who were so desperate for Paul to be put in prison, who were chasing him around, trying to stir up trouble and to get him thrown into prison, why were they doing it? What were they expecting to happen when this man was put in prison? They rejoiced. They thought, that's it. This idiot causing trouble and teaching against us has been silenced. But God, but God, we look at Philippians chapter 1 and we see in verse 12, Paul starts and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's not what we expected. That's not what they expected. He's saying it's done wonderful things for the gospel. And most of the brothers, not just a few, most of them have grown in confidence, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are not just a little more, are much more bold to speak the gospel, the word, without fear. They expected silence. They got proclamation. They expected a waning and a disappearing of this religion. But they got more preachers springing up and standing up and declaring God. So they got rid of Paul and they raised up another whole army of preachers full of boldness and courage. But God, don't you just love God's ways? Don't you just love God's perspective in those moments where you can stand on the, on the, is it the, bow, the bow of the ship and you can do your Titanic and you can say, God, I can see it. But God, see the facts of history, the facts of history is that every time Christianity has been tried to be suppressed and pushed down and, and martyrs and there's, and, there's, and there's a squeezing of Christianity, what happens is that it starts to, to leak out the seams and it explodes. Because they keep forgetting, but 
God. It's that expression, I, I'm not, not quite sure exactly what it is word for word, but the blood, the, the blood of the martyrs is the, is the seed of the church. I think is how it goes. The blood of the martyrs is the seed. And so you kill, you kill one, but it's seed. And you know what the problem with seed is? Is that it's lots. And that seed gets planted and it springs up again and again. And this is the, the gospel. And it's marked it from where so Paul is speaking about it back there 2,000 odd years ago. And it becomes this defining mark of the church, which is still in action today. And this creeping, determined, tenacious gospel just refuses to lie down. It refuses to stop. It's a negative example, but I couldn't think of a better one. It's like a weed in a garden. You put plastic down, you spray it, you do whatever you want to that weed. You know there's going to be another one coming up. And another one, and another one, and another one. And then that same tenacious, creeping, determined gospel gets into the hearts of men and women. And they can't be silenced or stopped. Immediately when I was reading this text in Philippians, it took me to Acts chapter 5. I, thought, I started thinking about this scenario. And do you remember what's going on? It's, it's a beautiful text. Go and read it at home in its entirety, that Acts chapter 5. But God's doing mighty things through the apostles and the religious leaders full of jealousy arrest them and throw them into prison. And then one of the most comedic, is that the right word? Comedy? Comedic things that happens in the Bible for me is that God sends this angel to set them free. So instead of like breaking the doors open so it's obvious, he just takes them through the walls or something because they just aren't there. So the next morning when they get, get, come and get them for trial, everything's locked. Everything's still like this. So they go through all the doors and there's just no one in the cell. So it says they're greatly perplexed. And then they find them preaching in the temple. So they, they, they get them there and they, they bring them back to where they should have been in the first place. And then Peter gives this astounding accusatory preach where he says, you crucified the Messiah. That was easy listening. And then he says, who should we obey? Because they're telling them to be quiet. Should we obey God or should we obey you? And then there's this beautiful moment because they, they get so angry that they want to kill them. And then there's a Pharisee called Gamaliel. Bless Gamaliel. And he stands up and he says the most profound thing. He says in verse 35, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Tiedus rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. In other words, Gamaliel is saying, There's precedent. This has happened before, ringing any bells. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. But he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So he's drawing this parallel to Jesus and his disciples. So here we've got another, here we've got another Judas. Here we've got another Tiedus. There's a man, he's drawn some people, and now he's been killed. And then he says, so in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You see it? But God, but God, you can't overthrow it if it's God. You might even be found opposing God. And I love this bit. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. <laughs> How's that taking the advice? Leave these men alone. They beat them. <laughs> Can you hear the rationale? Watch out for the but God, Gamaliel is saying. We've seen this before. So that's my first point, but God. Expect the unexpected. And the second one is this. Do the maths right. You have to do the maths right. I want to show you in this text, I want to show you Paul's maths. Right? Equation one. And I wasn't good at maths at school, so they're going to be very simple. Will you throw up that first one for me, Dev? Thanks. Bad things are happening to me. This is Paul's equation. Brothers, I want you to know that what has happened to me what has happened to him is this, prison, hardship, envy and rivalry from others, potential execution. 
We're going to zoom on this next week and we're going to come and look at some of the emotions that Paul would be facing in this scenario. That's another story. But this is what's happened to him. Then he, underneath the line, he says, if you take bad things are happening to me and then you add good things are happening in God's kingdom. So he says, these bad things, I don't want you not to know, brothers, that these things are happening. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So Paul's testimony rings out to the gods and to others. Suddenly there's this explosion of bold preaching, of bold witnessing. Christ has preached, and this is his equation, equals rejoice. Phenomenal. Bad things happening to me, but good things are happening in the gospel, Rejoice! I like that, Matt. Paul gives us a second equation. It goes like this. Christians are doing bad things to me. Don't you hate the Christians? Christians are doing bad things to me. People are preaching for gain. People are preaching for fame. Other church styles. Man, I can't stand those oaks in the way they do that. They got no understanding. So he says, Christians are doing bad things over here. But he says, good things are still happening for the gospel. The gospel is being proclaimed. People are coming to know Christ despite all of this. So just now, I think, I think it's one slide, two slides. You'll see, oh, you know what the answer is, right? Rejoice! And then there's the arrow. So despite all of this, despite all of these things, the gospel's still being proclaimed. I mean, how can Paul honestly say this? Is this just like an early example of you know, the positive thinking movement? Or like fake it till you make it, you know? So I want to quickly dig into these two things and then we're going to be done. Let's look at equation one. What exactly are bad things? When Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, we read what has happened to me, prison, envy from other people, and we insert bad things. Right? No one ever went to prison and you're like, oh, cool. See, bad things are happening to us our whole lives, man. People hurt us. People gossip. People lie about us. Our health. Terrible things happen. We feel the effects of that on our bodies with heart disease and cancer. We see it ripping apart society with affairs and with with divorce. We see it in crime and murder and and rape and abuse. We see injustice and corruption and inequality and, and burglaries. And all these terrible things. Things that if we are looking from the bow of of earth... Make no sense. If we're looking with earthly perspective, they make no sense. What's the point of this life, God? And Paul in this text is saying, I trust the providence of God. He's saying, you think they're bad. You think these things that have happened to me are bad. And next week we're going to zoom in on that. So I'm not, I'm not uh, poo-pooing. What is, the, is that the right word? I'm not going down on your emotions in those moments and in, in the real trials that we face and the real, the real darkness of those days. We'll speak about that in much more detail next week. But Paul is saying those things which were meant for bad have advanced the gospel and so that equals good. That equals I rejoice. He's saying I trust the providence of God. God knows better. He can see more than you can see. He can understand more of the picture. What are you facing this morning, friends? What are you facing? Right where you're sitting, you know. God is in control. Will you trust the providence of God? I've often thought of this metaphor in my own life. I I think of myself as an ant the one who escaped the magnifying glass scenario. And I, I think of like finding the enter key. I'm like walking on a, on a keyboard, right? Like a computer keyboard. And I find the enter key. 
So I start like pontificating about the enter key. Like I found the enter key. It's like huge. It's this, this big key. It's so powerful. And I start telling my friends about what I found and telling everyone what I found. Completely, completely unaware of the power of what's beneath my feet. This is earthly perspective for me when I think about perspectives. Just so you get the link. Sorry, it was a bit obscure. This is earthly perspective. That God's this, this, this computer power, this huge picture, this big picture view. And here I'm this little ant running around on the enter key, so excited, which is great. And it's good that God's exciting me, but I can only see in part. And so we throw our eyes upward like we did in worship so beautifully this morning and say, I trust you, God. I trust you. And Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really, not like pretend, really served to advance the gospel. He's saying, you, God, see it. You see it. I didn't see it. But now I can see a little bit. I can see that the gospel is being advanced. Paul concurs with the writer of Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite verses. I think it's Ecclesiastes 5. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That whole verse is summed up like this. Angry with God, shouting at him, telling him what you think. Friends, there's moments for that. But he is God in heaven and you are man on earth. So let your words be few. We don't understand everything. I can tell you one thing, friends. When your understanding is put up against the character of God and somehow your understanding makes it seem like God is bad or cruel or capricious or not a good God, your understanding is wrong. Our God is consistent with who he is and our perspectives shift like shifting sand in the desert Paul says it like this in Romans he says in Romans 8 and we sang it so beautifully in the song that Ryan led us in this morning and we know that for those who love God all things say that with me would you do that just me just to please me please all things okay so we said most things right no all things. So we said some things, right? All things. So we said good things. No, no, no. All things. So we said things I can understand. See, Paul, what about, what about that baby that died? Paul, what about that guy that was in a car wreck when he was 21? Surely. What about my business going bankrupt? What about my divorce? What about this? What about that? Take, take the worst thing you can imagine in your life, whether it's by your own fault or not, by your own sin. Do you genuinely believe Romans 8, that we know that for those who love God, that if you love God, and that's key, all things can work together for good. That thing that springs to mind when I say the worst thing that ever happened to you in your life, do you believe that? You sang it this morning, so you better, otherwise you were lying when you were singing. We sang it, all things work together for our good. For those, it finishes off, who are called according to his purpose. I mean, this is, is so evidently what Paul believes. And guys, this is what the central message of Philippians is. One of, let me say one of, it's not the only, but one of the central messages of Philippians goes like this. You can rejoice, you can put rejoice at the bottom of your equation because God is sustaining you no matter what gets thrown at you. And friends, I'm not, I'm not negating what some of you are going through. That's not my intention at all this morning. I know you personally. I've walked roads with some of you. I know about some of the deep, deep, deep waters, the valley of the shadow of death that you walk through. So not for a moment hear me saying anything non-empathetic. But I want to tell you with clarity this morning that He can sustain you. No matter what the outcome of what you're facing, He can sustain you. He will sustain you. And there's moments where we go through life with grim faces and white 
knuckles holding on for dear life. We see in, 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 this, in this beautiful story of Philippians as we read the whole book and we see as we unfold scripture and look at how God has worked with men and women over centuries that they even in these sufferings can find joy. James, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Here's the challenge for you this morning. Do you believe this? The second equation goes like this. Christians are doing bad things. But God can make good things happen in His kingdom, so we rejoice. That's the second equation. And this verse just so beautifully takes away for me the the one excuse we might think is valid. But they were Christians. But it's a Christian who's doing this to me. They should know better. And yes, they should. I get that. Man, but how we need to get to grips with being one body. I had a conversation in our, our Romans group the other day. And we were talking about like, this, this big unity in the church, unity in the church. And JB just so helpfully just said, guys, scripturally, uh, this is more like an experiential thing, like trying to have unity in the church, because biblically, it can't be anything else. There ain't two churches. There ain't two brides. So I'm going to take you, just in case you don't believe me, to Ephesians chapter 4, and I want you just to count how many times this passage says the word one. Okay? Listen to this. There is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. I count seven. Who is over all and through all and in all. See, how do we respond when we are mistreated by Christians. As we are want to finish off this morning. How do we respond when our church experience and the expectation that we had with church is completely jarring? How do we respond in the very real, again I keep saying this because I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, but in the very real moments where leaders hurt us, betray us, run off and have an affair, How do we respond in those moments? How do we respond when people are reading the scripture in such a way that we can't fathom how they reached the conclusions they reached? I want to to be careful here, but I want to be strong this morning. We throw out pithy lines, unthinking lines, like just read the Bible when someone disagrees with us theologically. It's so unhelpful because it's a conversation stopper. It shuts that conversation down. They are reading the Bible, many of them, and they're reaching a different conclusion to what you're reaching. So just by saying, just read the Bible, I just read the Bible simply, And then what they're implying is then you'll understand. Then you'll be big. Then you'll be big like me. And you'll see it from my perspective. I want to ask us to stop doing that. If we do that, can we stop doing that? See, Christians are masterful at shooting holes in the Christian boat. We the guys who sink us. We the guys with the shotgun shooting our own boat. (laughs) That's us. And you know what happens? The cynics are delighted. Oh, look at the church. Look at those bunch of fools. And they're right. But God is deeply grieved. I want to speak to you this morning about Christchurch. I want to tell you that in our city is a lampstand that is going through a really difficult time. They need our prayers like we've never prayed for them before. God is taking them through a leadership transition. Friends, if anything in your heart is against what is happening in a church like that, and we have some joy or delight, man, we are grieving God. This is the time where we should get on our faces and cry out that whatever is happening and whatever is going on, this is an injury to us. 
It should feel like we're poking a, a needle into our own toe. This is us. Maybe we speak about shofar. Maybe it's time that some of us shut up about our opinions. We haven't even been there. This is a church that's planted 60 churches in the last 15 years. Yes, some of the stuff they proclaim differently to us. Yes, we reach some different theological positions. But man, are they preaching Jesus? Is the, is the Christ proclaimed? You see, what happens so often in our church circles is that we take preferences. And then we want to, we're tempted to make them virtues. So I'll give you a couple of examples, right? How many of you have ever heard this conversation? I don't like a mega church. I don't think a mega church is good. I like a small church. My church is a family church. That's why I come to New Gen, because it's a nice family church. That's why I come. I love it here. All right? It's a preference. It's okay. A preference is great. I prefer being in a smaller family church. Wonderful. But now what happens is I don't just leave it there. Now I attach a virtue to my preference. Now it's not just, I like a small church. Now it's, this is the better way to do this church. This is the best way. What they're doing, we got it. They don't have it. What about speaking in tongues? This is another favorite. That church doesn't speak in tongues. We speak in tongues. We've got it. They don't get it. The drums, the music, the worship. We could go on and on and on and on and look at a whole bunch of stuff. And maybe tongues is a bad example because I don't think that's just a preference thing. I think it's actually a scripture thing. But it's a bad example, right? But there's a whole ton of things we could come and we can say, I like this. I'm comfortable here. I prefer this. Good, good, good. Fine, fine, fine. Enjoy what you enjoy. God made you like that. That's why I'll say often and I'll say it again this morning. New gen is not for everybody. Please don't join us if you don't like it here. Please. Go find somewhere you like, honestly. But when we start attaching these virtues, man, I want to, I want to ask us this morning, in the, in the kindest way I can, stop it. Church, stop it. Stop shooting holes in other churches in this town. Baptist, Presbyterian, every nation, shofar, kingdom fire. I'm meeting with these leaders. I'm meeting some of these guys. These are good men of God. Yes, they have differences of opinion. Yes, we all get stuff wrong. Man, I'm going to stand before God and he's going to say, Paul, you got this whole list of stuff that was wrong. I'm like, I'm so sorry, God. I'm so glad I still here. <laughs> it's okay. And I'm not shutting down conversation. I'm not saying we don't need theological debate. I'm not saying we don't need to say, hey, guys, we think you're wrong on this. And I'm okay with that. But we've got to find legitimate places to do this. If we're not, we, we're grieving God. It's not funny. It's not cute. We're grieving God. There is one. We see I started this piece, to the second equation. There is one church, one body, one spirit. And we are all baptized into that one spirit together. And you know what it's like? It's like Christ, the one Christ, the one Christ, because there isn't two. There's not one for the Zulus and one for the English and one for the Afrikaans. We all have the same Christ and he speaks English. Sorry, sometimes I think things just come out. But we, we, have, we have this one Christ and he valued this one bride so much that he died for her. And yet we think it's okay to take cheap shots at her? Really? We're going to take cheap shots at the church of God? Friend, put your hurt on the back burner. Let's get some heavenly perspective this morning. Let's remember what we're trying to do in this town. When, I, when we moved here, I looked at some stats. What are we, 140,000 people in this town? Alright, if I take all the churches optimistically, like take the pastor's numbers, that's the most optimistic number, how many people are in your church, and I add all of that up, I reckon we may be like, what, 8,000? Maybe? 10,000? That means we've like a tiny percentile of reaching Stellenbosch, and yet we're going to shoot each other's boats. We don't need to shoot each other's boats. We need to be blowing wind into other churches' sails and say, how can we help you plant more churches? How can we help you? What can we do? What do you need? you need money? Here's some money. You need people? Great. This is going to hurt, but we got some really good people, and if they're willing to come, we'll send them to you. Can you imagine? That, that excites me. 
Coming back to Paul. So what does Paul do? Here's where we end. Paul says, what then? What then? These people are preaching Christ from rivalry and envy. These people are, have all these different emotions, all these different conflicts. They proclaim Christ out of a non-sincerity. They're trying to afflict me. But Paul, they're not saying nice stuff. That church not saying nice stuff about us. They're trying to afflict us. Paul says, what then? What if all these things are true? They're true. What, what then? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, no matter how they do it, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. And then if you see the next verse, it's not up for you in your Bible. He goes immediately on to say, yes, and I will rejoice. Or the Old Testament, or the Old Testament, the older versions of the Bible say, I will say it again, rejoice. That's how I grew up in learning that section. I will say it again. Rejoice. I will say it again. Rejoice. You know why you got to keep doing that? Because you don't want to rejoice. I'll say it again, Paul. I'll say it again. Rejoice. <laughs> rejoice. So what are you facing this morning? Impossible odds. I want to remind you, God wins every time. God wins every time. Whether he's sustaining that embryonic Philippians church that should never have made it and made it. Whether he's sustaining our salvation from the beginning, from the first day, the tale of two days, from the first day until the last day of judgment. He's sustaining us. Whether he's sustaining us through trials by both non-Christians who want to throw us in prison or make the things that when Paul says, this is what happened to me, whatever those things are in your life, or by Christians themselves, when faced with crushing defeat, God rises victorious. But God, but God, think about Jesus for a moment. I've asked you a whole bunch of questions this morning about what would you have expected. Let me ask you this. What did the Jews expect when Jesus was crucified? Their problem was done. They had got rid of this man who had been causing such issues for them. Little did they know that that was the beginning of their headaches. That was the start of the trouble. Because suddenly these men and women who were so empowered and full of the, of the Spirit of God began to rise up all over Jerusalem and pray and, to, and, and praise and to see the sick healed. And they began to preach and proclaim Christ everywhere they went. And then they persecuted them and then they scattered. And you know what happened as they scattered? It was God whose hand was in their suffering. God was behind some of that persecution and sending them all over the place because it was his purpose. As they went, they shared the gospel and little fires began to go out from Jerusalem and began like little sparks began, these fires began to start all over the place in their lives, in their, in their town, in their cities, whatever you call it, in their provinces. But God, but God, when it comes to you this morning, but God, when it comes to the gospel facing oppression, when it comes to the gospel flourishing in stillies, we've got to throw ourselves on God and say, but God, these churches are fighting God. When I got you, I couldn't believe how much churches like to fight in this town. It's like a, it's like a I don't know, like a hobby, a pastor's hobby. We've got to come and say, but God, you can restore, you can knit hearts and, 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 and heal divides which have been there for years. You can come and bring them tight again, God. Thanks, George. <laughs> see, it's in seeing. When we, when we see right, when our perspectives change, when we see with heavenly perspectives, when we stand on that boat and we can look out and for those moments in our lives where God begins to show us His perspective, it's here, it's in those moments that we place our trust in Him afresh. We say, Father, I see it. I, see, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. But now... Now I see it. God, these circumstances that I'm facing, I didn't know, I felt overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do, God. I'm sorry, God. I see it. I see it. You got it in your hands. And I want to encourage you in application, and all of it's been application in some way. But the reason that Paul's equations make sense, where they make most sense, is when we take our requests before God in prayer. I want to encourage us again to be a praying church. Where are your prayer times? In your car, great. On your knees, late at night, great. Early in the morning, wherever they are, I don't care. Just pray. Just pray. He will sustain us. 
I want to encourage you to read His Word. In reading His Word, there's such deep encouragement. Guys, it's not just read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And then you'll grow some more, and you'll grow some more. And it's like this, this boring thing that we do. Man, the, the encouragement that comes from the Word of God, when we find men and women, and suddenly it's like articulating what we are going through in our lives. We're like, this is me. And sometimes it's like a woman who's going through it, and I'm like, oh, that's weird. But it's still, it's, this is me. This is what's going on in Esther, or in any of these things that are happening. And it helps us to be deeply encouraged when we see how God has been sustaining Israel from, from the beginning, from, from Genesis right to there. He made a promise to Abraham. And then for, for, for centuries, God takes this people, the Jewish people, and he pulls them through trial after trial and exile after exile and land invasions and all this crazy, crazy stuff. And we suddenly read it in its, in its position in the Word of God and we're like, God sustains them for centuries. I think he's got my issue. I think he can sort out my boss. And we come away so deeply encouraged by God's word. He will sustain you. Then I want to encourage you. You don't have to have a good voice to be a worshiper. You don't have to sing one note to be a worshiper. It's a heart attitude. It's a heart position. It's inclining your heart to God. I don't care if you lift your hands, if you close your eyes, if you dance around. You can do ballet. You can do whatever, even ballet. And even God can redeem that. (laughs) but I want you to cultivate the practice of marveling of marveling at God taking time Father I think about you and I just I, I don't get it but I marvel I worship you just open your mouth I worship you God I don't know what to say I'm not a singer God I worship you Put some Hillsong on. Put some Bethel on. Put some whoever. Songs of Praise 1980. Open your mouth and I worship you, God. I marvel at you, King. And it's in these moments that God will walk us through our deepest values with joy. Our equation. Put whatever you're going through on the top line. Put God's advancing His kingdom. God's sustaining His church. God's spreading His gospel. God's got me till the end. God's going to hold me until that judgment day at the final day. And then put equals rejoice. God, I don't feel like that, God, at all. doesn't matter. Just open your mouth. Father, I thank you in the midst of this trial. I'm done. Father, we want to thank you for each and every person sitting here this morning. And I ask you, God, that you would deeply encourage hearts deeply challenge our hearts, God, especially the stuff I'm speaking over, the churches in Stellenbosch. Lord, will that thing come and burn inside of us until there's a hatred in us for shooting holes in the Christian boats? A hatred, God, where we would see so clearly that we are one church, united by one spirit, held by one Jesus, that we're one bride, that we're on one mission. Oh, God, how we need you to keep this vital and alive in our hearts, God. Father, would you come and say some stuff, take some stuff that I might have said unhelpfully this morning. Just erase it right now, Father, from minds. But Father, I feel like you've spoken through your spirit to us from your word this morning. And with those, with those little fires that have lit in hearts this morning, God, would they bring fruitfulness. Grow in us, Lord. Teach us. We long for more of you. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen and amen. Over to you, Johnny.